Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2021, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. You're listening to DOGS program. DOGS stands for the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. And we believe in public education fervently. And with the same fervour, we believe that state aid or taxpayers' money should not go to the private sector because we believe that education is a right, not a charity or um, a choice for um, people who've got money and not a choice for people who haven't. We are also, for this reason, fervent about the separation of religion from the state. And in the last two or three weeks, one of the major uh, problems that has surfaced in Canberra and in Victoria also, around Australia, has been the whole idea of religious discrimination. The dogs know, perhaps better than anybody else, that Section 116 of the Constitution, when it was put into the Constitution by the founders, was meant to protect religious liberty. But unfortunately, back in 1981, in an infamous dogs case, the private schools, in order to keep their money, argued that they were not really religious institutions, they were really educational institutions, and the money meant a lot more than religious freedom. So the High Court listened to them and they read the religious freedom clause of our Constitution down and out. From 1981, there hasn't been any true religious freedom in Australia for either different religious groups or for people who have no belief at all. So uh, they're not mentioning 116 at the moment. The uh, religious schools, or some of them, not all of them, uh, want to have very special exemptions from equal opportunity uh, discrimination law. And they are looking to uh, set the Conservatives in Canberra against the less Conservatives in Victoria. So we're going to uh, spend quite a bit of time on this issue uh, today in press release 915, Religious Freedom, Federal-State Conflict Over the Religious Discrimination Bill. And to lead us off on really what is quite a long press release, we have Oliver. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jane. Some, but by no means all, religious spokesmen but most particularly religious administrators of religious employers of religious educational institutions want protection from laws which require them to treat people equally. So they want exemptions from equal opportunity laws claiming religious freedom. No mention has ever been made in the recent debate of section 116 of the Australian constitution or the dogs case in which religious school representatives tried to prove for 26 days in the high court that they were not religious institutions. So the debate about religious discrimination is back. So why do we keep hearing about religious freedom? When same-sex marriage was legalized in late 2017, conservative religious groups were promised a religious freedom review as a consolation prize. That review, led by former Liberal MP Philip Ruddock, found Australia does not have a religious freedom problem, but did recommend new legislative protections against religious discrimination In response, in December 2018, the Morrison government promised a Religious Discrimination Act. Conservative religious groups and religious educational administrators who wish to have power to sack teachers 
whose personal lifestyle conflicts with their values are concerned by state laws which make religious discrimination illegal. For example, in Victoria, the Andrews government is seeking to reform religious exemptions to prevent schools discriminating against students and teachers on the basis of personal characteristics, such as sexuality. Under that bill, currently before Parliament, schools would only be able to discriminate where religious belief is an inherent requirement of the job, meaning it could be a requirement for a school principal, but not a maths teacher or a cleaner. The changes in the coalition bill have been vigorously opposed by the Australasian Christian Lobby and Christian Schools Australia, and the National Catholic Education Commission has called for the federal coalition bill to be passed as quickly as possible to ensure religious schools' ability to set their own ethos was protected against state legislation, including Victoria's proposed reforms. They hope that the Victorian legislation can then be challenged under the conflict of law, section 109 of the Australian constitution. But the history of the federal bill to date indicates that it's not so simple. There has been a shift in community attitudes in the last few decades and various community groups, including religious and private school teacher groups have been fighting back. The independent education union, for example, has warned that the coalition's religious discrimination bill could strip states of the power to regulate religious institutions hiring practices. Equality advocates. Equality, Institute, Equality Australia and the IEU have said provisions of the bill designed to allow institutions such as schools to hire staff on the basis of faith could interfere with imminent changes in Victoria seeking to limit religious exemptions in equal opportunity law. On the 23rd of November, there was a full advertisement paste placed in the age signed by 250 organizations, including Christian, Islamic, Buddhist, Sikh, and Hindu secular, and secularist, secularist groups. Now, Maddie is going to read us what the advertisement said. Yes, I most definitely will. Thank you, Oliver. So the title was Open Letter to Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Dear Prime Minister, our laws should protect all of us equally. We are organisations representing a diverse range of stakeholders. We support fair and equal discrimination laws which protect all of us, including people of faith and those who are not religious, equally alongside other groups. However, previously released drafts of the Morrison government's religious discrimination bill failed to protect all of us equally. Among our concerns are a bill that would one, override existing discrimination protections, including for women, people with disability, LGBTQIA plus people, and people with different or no religious beliefs. Two, make it harder for employees, educators, and professional and licensing bodies to foster inclusive cultures and protect their employees, students, customers, and clients from offensive and derogatory comments based on religion. And three, allow health professionals to put their religious beliefs ahead of their patients' health. Previous drafts of the Religious Discrimination Bill included provisions which allowed each of the above to occur. A Religious Discrimination Bill which contains any of the above offending provisions would not attract our support. We urge the government to ensure that any religious discrimination bill it introduces does not remove existing discrimination protections or undermine Australians' access to non-judgmental healthcare. It must ensure all our workers, students, customers, and clients are equally protected from discrimination, no matter who they are, who they love, or what they believe. It must not privilege the rights and beliefs of one group over another. It must be alive to the real harm caused by divisive and discriminatory rhetoric that undermines the inclusive organisations and society that we have attempted to build together. It must not take us backwards. Unless the Religious Discrimination Bill protects all of us equally, we cannot support it. We urge you to ensure that any religious discrimination bill is put to a public inquiry so that Parliament can hear from those directly impacted by these laws. Well, thank you very much, Maddie. Now, that was an, that's the contents of an advertisement, a full-page advertisement signed by 250 organisations. 
I suggest that you actually look it up on the internet because embedded in those uh, that list, 250, are some very interesting religious groups, an astounding number of uh, small Catholic groups, and also um, I think there was a Muslim uh, uh, ladies' group as well as, of course, the usual suspects like the legal services, the community legal services, the secular society, and ACOS and VCOS and those kind of organisations as well. And the, uh, the organisations representing the um, LGBTIQI, is it plus, A plus uh, communities. So uh, we recommend that you go and have a look at it because um, this is really a very new development in Australian history. But we'll have a bit of a, a break and Sorrel will bring us back to a legal um, analysis of what is going on in Canberra, which is by Professor Luke Beck of Monash University. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Well, uh, we hope that you're still with us, listeners, on this really very important um, discussion about the Religious Discrimination Bill that is not only in, in Victoria, the Victorian Parliament, but also in the Federal Parliament, uh, with the Conservative Christian groups and schools hoping that the, uh, the, the uh, Federal Discrimination Bill will override the Victorian one. But, um, Sorrel, you've got the legal analysis of what is actually going on with this bill, what it contains and what it means. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. So third time lucky, what has changed in the latest draft of the Religious Discrimination Bill? Luke Beck will tell us. Luke Beck is a member of the Australian Labor Party and is on the board of the Rationalist Society of Australia Incorporated. This article reflects only his personal views. The Morrison government has finally provided details of the third draft of its religious discrimination bill. This prompted heated discussion in a meeting of coalition MPs on Tuesday. But Prime Minister Scott Morrison still wants to see the bill introduced in this final sitting fortnight of 2021. What is the bill trying to do? What has changed since the last time we saw it? And will it be enough to satisfy the critics? When same-sex marriage was legalised in late 2017, conservative religious groups were promised a religious freedom review as a consolation prize. That review, led by former Liberal MP Philip Ruddock, found Australia does not have a religious freedom problem, but did recommend new legislative protections against religious discrimination. In response, in December 2018, the Morrison government promised a religious discrimination act. Former Attorney General Christian Porter released a draft religious discrimination bill in late 2019 and a second draft in early 2020. Both were roundly criticised. Human rights groups complained the bill weakened other human rights protections and created a licence to discriminate. Conservative groups complained it did not give adequate protections to the people of faith. What's in the third draft? Current Attorney General Michaela Cash's third draft is effectively in two parts. The first part is a legal shield for protecting people from being discriminated against on the basis of their religion or lack of religion. This isn't really controversial as it simply adds religious discrimination to the existing suite of federal race, sex, also covering LGBTQIA status, disability and age discrimination laws. All states and territories other than New South Wales and South Australia already have laws prohibiting religious discrimination. The second part of the bill is more of a legal sword and is a bit more controversial. Some of the controversial features of the earlier drafts, such as the ability of healthcare workers to provide healthcare providers to refuse treatment are gone. 
but the current draft still includes a range of provisions overriding federal, state and territory anti-discrimination laws to allow people to be discriminated against. Perhaps the most controversial aspect of the bill is the statements of belief provision. This provision overrides every federal, state and territory anti-discrimination law to make statements of belief immune from legal consequences under those laws. Statements of beliefs are things like comments made from a boss to a female employee that women should not hold leadership positions or comments from a doctor to a patient that disability is punishment for a sin. In order to gain immunity, the statement has to be a religious belief that the person genuinely considers to be in accordance with the doctrines, tenets, beliefs or teachings of that religion. For non-religious people, the statement has to be of a belief that the person genuinely considers to relate to the fact of not holding a religious belief. There are three limitations. A statement of belief will not be protected if it is malicious, if a reasonable person would consider the statement would threaten, intimidate, harass or vilify a person or group, or if the statement would promote or encourage the commission of an offence punishable by at least two years imprisonment. This is an extraordinary departure from the standard practice in federal anti-discrimination law. Standard practice is to ensure state and territory laws are not overridden. This provision, this provision is bad for everyone. It will protect those who are nasty to Christians, as well as those who are nasty to LGBTQIA plus people, women or people with disabilities. One key change from previous drafts is statements that intimidate will not be protected. Earlier drafts only excluded a serious intimidation. Earlier drafts of the bill also included the so-called Falau Clause, named after the incident in which Israel Falau parted ways with Rugby Australia as a result of comments he posted on social media about gay people. That clause would have made it unlawful for employers to have codes of conduct that limit a person's ability to make statements of belief. This provision is gone in the current draft, but there is still a mini Falau clause. Qualifying bodies like a medical board that license professions and occupations are banned from setting professional conduct rules that prohibit making statements of belief unless compliance with the rule is an essential requirement of the profession, trade or occupation. So while an employer can discipline an employee for making a statement of belief, a professional association cannot. This bill would mean it is not religious discrimination for bodies such as religious schools, hospitals or aged care facilities to seek to preserve a religious ethos among staff by making faith-based decisions in relation to employment. For example, a Catholic hospital would be able to have a Catholics-only hiring policy the bill simply requires religious bodies to have publicly available policies if they want to take advantage of this rule. The bill specifically overrides state and territory anti-discrimination laws to ensure that such preferencing in employment is allowed in religious schools, even in those states where it is unlawful. There are some complex constitutional issues with the bill. Here are three of them. Now, this is very important because this is where Luke Beck is one of the experts in Australia. So um, the uh, people who, who are the, the conservative Christian religious people who have schools and want to discriminate uh, on religious grounds are hoping that through Section, 11, Section 109 they can override the, um, the, the Victorian discriminatory laws in, in particular. So Luke Beck is really uh, on the ball here. First, federal parliament might not have constitutional power to enact all parts of the bill. The government says it is relying on the external affairs power, which allows federal parliament to pass laws implementing treaty obligations, like Article 18 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, about the right to freedom of thought, conscience and belief. But international human rights law is clear that religious freedom cannot be used to interfere with other rights, which is exactly what some parts of the bill do. Second, yes, this is, this is actually very interesting because um, when you are, are a signatory to an international treaty, then you are actually agreeing to a much lower level often of human rights 
than uh, if you had a Bill of Rights. And we did have Section 116, which is part of the Bill of Rights, um, and what was uh, potentially a strong section. But the International Code has also been signed by countries like Saudi Arabia and India and others. So it isn't all that strong, really. But back to you, Sol. Thank you. Uh, second, overriding state laws throws the state tribunal systems into an unholy mess. State anti-discrimination cases are usually heard by state tribunals, which are quicker and cheaper than courts. But for constitutional reasons, state tribunals cannot consider federal laws. If the bill passes, many state anti-discrimination cases will now also involve the federal statement of belief exemption, which means these cases will need to be heard by a court. Because court cases are very expensive, it is likely many of these cases simply won't happen, and the people who have been discriminated against will be left without a remedy. Well, perhaps that's the intention. Mm, one would wonder. Third, the statement of belief provision overriding state and territory laws appears to change definitions in those laws rather than simply overriding the operation of those laws. While federal parliament has the power to override the operation of state laws, it does not have the power to amend or change the content of those laws. Recent indications are the bill will be referred to a Senate inquiry as per the normal process for an important piece of legislation. If that happens, there's almost no chance of a vote on this bill this year and the heated debate will continue. But given the ongoing complexities and far-reaching consequences of the bill, a proper Senate investigation is essential. Oh, yes. So I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And Mr Morrison seems to have a few other problems on his hands. But um, he seems pretty determined about this. Over to Dale. The dog's position, well, the dogs repeat what we said in press release 914. The religious men in charge of religious schools were given the opportunity in 1979 and 19, to 1981 to protect religious liberty under Section 116 of the Constitution in the dog's case. They chose to accept and become dependent upon funds from the public treasury rather than be truly independent. They persuaded the High Court to read Section 116 down, making a mockery of the intentions of the original framers of the Constitution. In 1981, Mammon proved a greater temptation than religious liberty, so much then for the integrity of their religious beliefs. See the High Court section on our website. Since that time, the behaviour of private religious schools has reached ever greater, greater heights of mendaciousness. Every version of the needs policy introduced by governments has been distorted by religious lobbyists at both federal and state level. Australian education levels of inequality, like climate change policies, are at an international low. Religious groups, genuine or other, or otherwise, are now paying the price for the loss of religious liberty they promoted in 1981. Religious freedom depends upon being independent of the state and its largesse. All citizens, regardless of their sexual orientation, pay taxes. He who pays the piper is now calling the tune. Well, thank you, Dale. And we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back. And Jeff is going to tell us about where Mr Morrison really stands in all of this religious discrimination matter. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 9419 Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Well, we're still here with the Dogs Program and we hope you're still with us because we're now going to hear from Jeff on where Mr Morrison really stands on this whole religious liberty business. He's got his own peculiar beliefs and uh, preferences, doesn't he, Jeff? Oh, it certainly does. It certainly does, Jean. How are, how, are, how are you all listeners? Look, Morrison is 
is not worried about religious discrimination. He's positively actually discriminating against people who aren't religious. So he is absolutely punishing the public schools and he's open about it. He's uh, bragging about it in this speech, which is recanted in the, um, by Murray Trembath from the Leader newspaper, um, which is now Murdoch local paper. But anyway, um, it was on November 21st and it's called Mor Scott Morrison reflects on a pandemic, on the pandemic at the opening of the new hall at De La Salle College in Caringbar. Now, Caringbar is in the south, uh, short, near, near Cronulla, south side of Sydney. Um, in the Shire, a, and that's and he's and it's his it's his electorate. Yeah, that's right, and, and um, it's obviously it's a quite a grand school, uh, Catholic school, and he's bragging about spending all the money there and how he's favouring uh, private schools over public schools deliberately. Let me go on. So this is Murray Trembath. He says Prime Minister Scott Morrison has reflected on the challenging two years of the pandemic with students at De La Salle College, Caringbar telling them that it is what they believe that will get them through tough times in their lives. Scott Morrison was speaking on Friday, the official opening and blessing of a new multi-purpose hall, which can accommodate 1,000 students and is part of a $9 million expansion, which includes internal and external sports facilities, additional music rooms, and an amphitheatre for outdoor learning. Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher OP, led the blessing of the hall, which is named Wiyenga Nagabamara, which apparently means Mary, Mother of God, in an Aboriginal language there, which I have to take their word for that. Um, there's no, Mary doesn't really appear in it. And, um, you know, we have the experience of, um, of um, Moomba, which, of course, we know has another <laughs> meaning here. But let's hope that it means Mary, Mother of God, in an Aboriginal language. <laughs> Mr Morrison spoke directly to the students of the college, which he said was affectionately known as Della throughout the Shire. Uh, the last two years have been very different, even more importantly, very difficult for our country, he said. I have thought a lot about our students in year 11 and 12 and how families have supported their children in two of the most challenging and important years of a student's life. Across our country, uh, businesses have had to push through, people have lost incomes, People have lost loved ones. It's been a very hard time. When you reflect on hard times, you think, what are the most important things? There have been many difficult times as Prime Minister, difficult decisions that we have had to make. The thing that sustains me through all those things, and I have no doubt it sustains your teachers, priests, parents, and indeed the things that have sustained you go very much to what you believe. We learn much in life, says Scott Morrison. But it is those difficult times, in those difficult times, that what you believe, the love and care of those around you, that it is indeed what sustains you. Mr. Morrison said the question could be asked why the federal government was spending $2.5 million of taxpayers' money to build such a facility. He said there are state schools, very fine ones here in the Shire. So why is 80% of the funding provided by the federal government for education provided to schools such as this one, he said, meaning a private school, especially a Christian private school? Well, at least he's admitting that he's giving 80% of it. I would suggest that it might even be more. It's an absolute brag and yeah. it's bald-faced uh, uh, discrimination in favour of Christian schools over public schools. Yeah. With public money. Yep. He says the reason is we believe parents want to have choice to ensure their children can get an education which combines learning with belief. They don't just want you to excel in your studies. We have seen some wonderful facilities that would help them do all those things, but I believe the reason you are here at Delar is because you what you have is an opportunity to grow stronger in your beliefs. Because I can tell you this, says Morrison, that's what's going to get you through. Mr. Morrison told students not to be defined by their gender, age or ethnic background. You are way more, he said. You are ultimately what you believe. And this is a school that passionately believes in that mission and that cause. There are many such schools around the country who do exactly the same thing. And that's why the federal government is so keen to provide funding, because we want young men and women in this country to have this opportunity to be exposed to an education that embraces belief. Think about what your beliefs are. Be careful about what your beliefs are, 
this is an important time to really understand that. And there are people here who can guide you along that path. The federal government is investing billions of dollars all around the country building facilities just like this. So parents can have that choice. And so students can have the opportunity for an education that has an extra element in it, which I personally think makes all the difference. Well, isn't that very revealing? Because uh, there's no, there's very little capital, capital, capital grants given to state schools because apparently the belief at De La Salle is considered to be um, superior to the many beliefs that would be uh, behind the children in our state schools, uh, including, of course, um, the belief that all people are equal and should have a right to education, not uh, be beholden to the peculiar choices of their parents. It means but, also um, that Morrison is particularly, he's, he's not hiding it anymore. He's no. clearly feels so comfortable that he is in charge and has destroyed the notion that public education is, is uh, the basis of Australian education. He, he's actively working against it. Uh, oh, he's active, actively working, openly proud of the fact that he's uh, funding, uh, favouring religious schools, especially Christian schools, uh, at the expense of the public. Uh, yes, to, well, of course, they can have their belief, but... Um... Uh, there's uh, also a question of action speaking much louder than words. We'll have a break and Sol and Maddie are going to talk, talk to us about some of the actions of these so-called um, religious schools. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year, your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Yes, well, you're still listening to the dogs program, I hope, because uh, Sol and Mandy and uh, Maddie have got a very interesting article, a complex problem, because the richest schools are the ones who are claiming the most HSC disability provisions up there in New South Wales. I think you'll find they're doing exactly the same down here in Victoria. It happens every year. And all of those values that Mr Morrison was talking about it usually comes down to the almighty dollar. And in this case, we're actually talking about cheating. Over to you, Maddie and Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. Um, so high fee private schools are claiming the most HSC disability provisions, despite the independent sector having the fewest students with special needs. As new data shows, claims increased by a third in the last four years. A third of students at High Fee Mariah College were granted HSC disability provisions last year, as well as about one in four students at Red M House, Wanoa and Asham, all independent schools. Yet there were no applications from the socioeconomically disadvantaged Punchbowl Boys High School in Sydney Southwest. Disability provisions are costly as they often require extra or even private invigilators who cost $27 an hour, as well as special equipment, complex planning and a team of assessors. The expense is borne by the publicly funded New South Wales Education Standards Authority. The provisions are designed to create a level playing field for students and range from extra reading time to breaks, scribes, and isolated rooms. A growing majority of applications are for psychological issues, such as anxiety, whilst others are for medical or learning conditions. High-fee schools often have staff available to help families navigate different kinds of applications, including HSC ones, while public schools have a lower staff-student ratio. Some disadvantaged families also fear there is a stigma attached to applying for disability provisions. 
the independent sector represents an increasing share of applications for HSC disability provisions, rising from 12.7% in 2017 to 16% last year, ahead of the Catholic school sector with 13% in 2020 and public schools with 10%. However, state schools have a higher proportion of students with a funded adjustment under the disability loading scheme and more pupils with substantive and extensive loadings than other sectors federal government figures show. Five of the top 20 schools for students gaining disability provisions in 2020 were government and the top four were private. Independent school applications are also least likely to be rejected. Now over to you, Maddie. Thank you so much, Cyril. Yes, Carol Taylor, a former chief executive of NESA, who worked for the organisation for 30 years, said at least half a dozen reviews over many years have tried to address the disproportionate use of disability provisions. He said the application and approval process were rigorous and students were not getting access to provisions they did not deserve. However, <clears throat> schools in lower socioeconomic areas did not apply for them at the same rate as advantaged ones. One issue was that families at some disadvantaged schools saw provisions as an admission that something was wrong with the student. They might also struggle with the process. At advantaged ones, parents and teachers understood how to navigate the system. It's the cultural capital thing, and that impacts on education in all sorts of ways, she said. It's a complex problem. It's got all kinds of dimensions. The process was also costly for Nessa, Ms. Taylor said, as it had its own team to assess the applications and it paid for the equipment, assistance and extra supervisors required if students needed more reading time or rest breaks. Craig Peterson, the head of Secondary Principals Council, said disability provisions could be a cultural issue within a school. In some, applications are sought after, while at others, there's a stigma. But if many of your peers are also receiving special provisions, that if you don't, there's a potential for the fear that you're somehow missing out, he said. However, high numbers of disability provisions made running the HSC an absolute nightmare for schools, Mr Peterson said. Even if you take away what each sector is doing and who is paying for it, the more students you have on special provisions, the more complex the exercise, he said. A spokeswoman for Nessa said students with provisions such as readers, scribes, rest break, extra time and anxiety disorders often did their exams in small groups, requiring their own supervisors. She said disability provisions represented a small but essential portion of the HSC budget. Over the last 18 months, Nessa has been conducting workshops that aim to reach every school in New South Wales to provide on the ground advice and support to improve schools' understanding of disability provisions. HSC disability provisions workshops aim to ensure all schools and school sectors know about and understand the program and apply as needed. The Chief Executive of the Association of Independent Schools of New South Wales, Jeff Newcomb, said the program was open to all sectors. AIS NSW is not in a position to comment on why there are not more applications from schools in other sectors, he said. All applications must be supported by documented evidence and there is a rigorous process for applications to be approved by NESA. Now, Dale is going to read some of our comments from that. Just a couple. Seriously said, I have a son on the autism spectrum and I've just decided to pull him out of one of the schools on this list and put him in a state school next year because of the school's lack of adequate support and disinterest. And I'm not the only parent who's made this decision. And Great Raven says, that's a good decision. The state school will be very likely to have someone whose job it is to support kids with needs. A friend of mine sent her son to private school she couldn't really afford in the hopes he'd be given help with his reading problems. Instead, they booted him out as it was soon clear that he wouldn't make them look good in VCE. And the sentiment sort of moves towards the costing of this because uh, it's not available to people who are sending their kids to public school. Uh, try $900 
for neuropsychological testing. And City Dweller says many assessments cost $2,000 in Sydney. And then Trim the Cat says, shows what money can do to keep an uneven playing field and increase privilege. But I'll stop there because we've got much more to carry on with. We'll have a quick break and then we'll be back with Jack. Kafias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Well, welcome back, listeners. Uh, we hope you're still listening. Uh, we are the DOGS program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. And you may remember last week we promised you that Jeff would continue with the information he had on what was going on in America. This is a program where we want to inform you. Over to you, Jeff. Yeah, well, hi, Jean. Thanks again. I just wanted to go on a, a little bit about it because it sort of like sets the pace for what's happening in Australia a little bit later. America seems to be culturally leading us towards the abyss of uh, destruction of public schools. And that if, we, if we see them a few years ahead of us, it won't be too far before these um, religious and conservative zealots start um, cherry-picking through our libraries and picking out books that they don't want our children to read or that um, they feel are culturally opposed to them or somehow challenge their views in some ways. Um, and so uh, there's a really strange phenomenon happening in America where, where book burning is seriously being pr proposed by um, members of school boards and things like that. Now, this is from an article in Time magazine, famous Time magazine, from November 16th uh, by Olivia B. Waxman, uh, who's a, a, a journalist with them, and she writes, um, we're preparing for a long battle. Librarians grapple with conservatives' latest effort, efforts to ban books. Now, she, she goes on. On November 8th, two members of a Virginia school board called for a book burning. During the board meeting that evening, the Spots, Spotsylvania County Public School Board unanimously ordered its school libraries to begin removing sexually explicit books after a concerned parent raised concerns about titles available via a library app. As the Freelance Star reported on November 9th, two board members, Courtland Representative Rabi, Rabi Abushmail and Livingston uh, Representative Kirk Twig, said they would like to see the removed books burned. What a great name, Kirk Twig. I think we should throw these books in a fire, Abu Ismail said, and Twig said he wanted to see the books before we burn them so that we can identify within our community that we are eradicating this bad stuff. This is hilarious. Don't <clears throat> you yeah, remember? Yeah. Do you remember Lady Chatterley's Lover? As soon as it was banned, everybody wanted to read it. Exactly. And it exactly. really wasn't that. It would be laughable if it, if it wasn't such a, um, what, what's that show on TV where the women have to wear the sort of nun suits and things? The Handmaid's Tale is what it sort of scarily reminds us of. Um, while this, that's from Margaret Atwood, wonderful piece. Um, while, the school board, while the school board is revisiting the decision after its attorney called it unconstitutional, the comments and the fact that members tried to do such a review to begin with are an extreme example of a trend that's alarming li librarians and free speech activists. Abu Ismail and Twig did not, did not immediately respond to a request for comment from Time magazine. Only a few months into the school year, librarians say efforts to ban books are on the rise and mark a new chapter in the history of attempts to censor books. Since September, school libraries in at least seven states have removed books challenged by community members. Among the books most frequently target, targeted 
uh, Tony Morrison's The Bluest Eye, 1970, George M. Johnson's All Boys Aren't Blue, A Memoir Manifesto, 2020, Maya Gababi's Gender Queer, A Memoir, 2019, Jonathan Everson's Lawn Boy, 2018, and Alison Bechsel's Fun Home, a Family Tragic Comic, 2006. Most of the challenge books so far across fiction and nonfiction are about race and LGBTQIA identities. We're seeing an unprecedented volume of challenges, says Deborah Caldwell-Stone, Executive Director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. I've worked for ALA for 20 years, and I can't recall a time when we had multiple challenges coming in on a daily basis. The American Library Association deals with efforts to ban books every school year. In fact, classics are regular fixtures on its top list of top 10 most challenged books, from John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men to Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird to Toni Morrison's Beloved. But the latest challenges come at a time when school boards nationwide have been bombarded with questions about whether schools are teaching critical race theory, a decades-old academic framework rarely taught about below the graduate level that scholars use to look at how legal systems and other institutions perpetuate racism and exclusion. Um, what, you, what you can see with book bannings is that they are tied to whatever is causing anxiety in society, says Emily Knox, author of the book banning of a book, author of book banning in the 20th, 21st century America, which is a, a publication. Since the beginning of 2021, conservative ad, advocacy groups have been spreading misinformation about critical race theory, which has become a catch-all term for the history of racism and working to help parents run for school boards and challenge their school districts over lesson plans or reading materials they feel are inappropriate. At least this was 20 very important in the Virginia, the, the recent uh, election in, in Virginia, I think it was, wasn't it? I think yeah. so. And, and, and in several, um, there's been lots of, uh, especially in the South and uh, well, the red states, this is, this yeah. is a really yeah. big problem. At least 28 states, <clears throat> 28 states have proposed or taken actions designed to restrict how teachers discuss racism and sexism, according to Education Week. Caldwell Stone says what is also new is the chorus of elected officials who are also calling for books to be removed from school libraries. A campaign ad for recently elected Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin fe featured a mum who wanted Beloved banned from her son's high school. And on November 10th, both the governors of South Carolina and Texas called for investigations into books. In Texas, where there's a law designed to ban the teaching of critical race theory, Republican Governor Greg Abbott called on the Texas Education Agency to investigate any criminal activity in our public schools involving the availability of pornography, he says. While Republican South Carolina government, Governor Henry McMaster singled out gender queer per a tip from concerned parents, and called for a statewide investigation to prevent pornography and other obscene content from entering the state, state's public schools. Kababi, who is non-binary, told the Texas Tribune that genderqueer aims to provide good, accurate, safe information for queer high school students at a time when there's a lot of misinformation about gender identity exploration online. In, in 1981, Time reported on a similar wave of attempts across the US to ban books. At that time, the bans were both a reaction to Everything goes new permissiveness, dusted forth in the 1960s, as Times Frank Strippett put, put it, and part of the rise of evangelical fundamentalism and the moral majority political coalition emboldened by the 1980 election of Ronald Reagan as president. The magazine even covered a book burning in Drake, North Dakota, which saw copies of Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five, James Dickey's Deliverance, and an anthology of short stories featuring jo Joseph Conrad. John Steinbeck and William Faulkner destroyed. I would think moral-minded people might object to books that are philosophically alien to what they believe. Reverend George A. Zaris, a moral majority leader in Illinois, told Time in an interview, if they have the books and feel like burning them, fine. And yet out of that era came a key precedent that upholds First Amendment protections for keeping books on school library shelves. In 1975, the Island Trees Union Fee School District in Long Island, New York, banned 11 books for being anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, and just plain filthy. Former students challenged the decision, and the case made it all the way up to the US Supreme Court, 
which ruled in 1982 that school boards cannot remove books because they don't agree with them, describing libraries as spaces of voluntary inquiry. Thanks to the First Amendment, the US has been remarkably, if not entirely, free of such official monitoring, the magazine wrote. Still, the nation has always had more than it needs of voluntary censors, vigilantes eager to protect everybody from hazards like ugly words, sedition, blasphemy, unwelcome ideas, and perhaps worst of all, reality. But the problem is, of course, that we've now got a Trump uh, High Court because, um, I'm sorry, Supreme Court, because uh, uh, he, he made so many appointments, didn't he? So as we experience a similar wave of fear around critical race theory with Minister Tudge's response to teaching Indigenous history in Australia, we can see how Australia, as Jeff mentioned, follows the US. But I think we should finish on a good news story. Coming up next is our Great State School of the Week. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school is Richmond Primary School. Congratulations, Richmond Primary School. Um, This excerpt is from their website and it talks about history, values and leadership. So under the subheading vision, we have a school vision that promotes integrity, lifelong learning and attainment of excellence. Under the subheading history, this is interesting, Richmond Primary School is located in the block bordered by Barclay, Burgess, Mary and Brighton Streets in Richmond an inner suburb of Melbourne. The school was opened in 1874. In the late 80s, Brighton Street Burnley Primary School and Cremont Street Primary were amalgamated and the new Richmond Primary School was formed. Richmond Primary School currently has an enrolment of 382, which represents an increase on previous years. The school has an appointed substantive principal and assistant principal. The majority of the students are from the immediate locality and the school has been granted an enrolment ceiling of 350. The school has a high socioeconomic profile based on the school's student family occupation index. Richmond Primary School is committed to providing every student with every opportunity by offering a challenging and varied curriculum based on Victorian curriculum. The school recognises the importance of catering for individual differences and personalising learning through its intervention program. It's got a strong arts focus and it also uses information and communication technology throughout the curriculum. The school performs at or above the state medians in all areas of NAPLAN assessment and they have a strong focus on student wellbeing with the values of respect, responsibility, and resilience being consistently implemented across the school. The behaviour of the students both in class and in the playgrounds reflects the high expectations they have. Richmond Primary School has recently refurbished its learning spaces through locally raised and government funding. This has allowed the school to expand its number of classrooms to 17 home groups. Richmond Primary School is committed to providing a safe and stimulating learning environment that respects and celebrates the diversity within their school community. So clap, clap that. Yeah, absolutely. You notice they're talking about values, not beliefs. Yes. I find that very interesting. Yes. Well, their core values are apparently respect, responsibility and resilience, all things. I wonder what Mr Morrison would have to say about. Mm. Oh, it wouldn't be good enough for him. <laughs> They'd be burning their books. To be able well, to perhaps Mr Morrison may not be good enough for them. Ah, there we go. Richmond Primary School values and fosters leadership and provides opportunities for all children to realise their leadership potential. Multi-age composite classes, that's interesting, enable children to lead by example and model good behaviour for younger children. 
In addition, their senior students are encouraged to become a part of their active student council, where they help coordinate school events, make decisions regarding students' rights and issues, and make impromptu speeches. How good is that? I like that the students have a say on other students' rights. I feel like that is um, really important and very, very yeah, Good on you, Richmond. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to throw some facts and figures in your ears <clears throat> from the ACARA site. The school has 367 pupils, 182 boys and 185 girls. The ICSIA value of the school is 1,148, which is actually well above average. The students are hardly representative of the community. It is a well-heeled community. 65% have parents from the upper quartile, 25% in the second highest, 9% from the third quartile and 2% from the poorest, 25% of the community. So there's a lot of really quite well-heeled people in Richmond who reject private education Hmm. and are sending their children to local public school. Good on them. Yeah, 15% of the pupils speak a language other than English and 0% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of advantaged students with dedicated principals and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $11,000, which is way below the Gontley Resource Standard to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $740,000 from the federal government and $2.8 million from the state government, $323,000 from fees and $437,000 from private fundraising. The capital grants in the last three years have been only $531,000. All this public and private money is money well spent. And we spoke about the NAPLAN results, but um, the NAPLAN results are more than just fine. They are well above average in writing and the improvement of the students over time is greater than that of other schools. So congratulations, Richmond Primary School. Well, our time is gone. If you want to find out more about us, go to www.adogs.info, but it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he, I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I Killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes. Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill Joe, you're ten years dead. I know.